Good afternoon, everybody. Today is May 5th, 2013. And today is part four of my sermon series on eschatology, which is simply the study of the last things, the study of the end times. In my first sermon, I did a historical survey of the various millennial views. And if I had to summarize it, I'll do it like this. In Revelation chapter 20, the Bible describes a millennium in which Satan is bound and Jesus reigns. Now, there are three main ways of interpreting this passage. First is the premillennial view, which is a literal, earthly, future interpretation of the millennium on the earth. Where Jesus returns, his second coming takes place at the beginning of the millennium. That's why it's called premillennium. The second major view is called amillennial. Amillennialists take the millennium to be a figurative age. One that is not future, but is current. The church age is, we are currently in the millennial reign. It's not earthly, but it's one that's heavenly. And then the third view is postmillennial. Postmillennialists believe in a literal earthly future reign of Christ, but they believe that this takes place through a Christianizing of the entire world, where Christian values and beliefs permeates most of society, makes the world a better place. You know, like that song, you know, I see skies of blue. I don't know why I thought of that song. What a wonderful world. You know, that summarizes the post-millennial psyche. Post-millennials believe in a literal earthly future millennium, but they believe that it will take place through the church's victorious spread and advance of the gospel on the earth. And Jesus returns at the end of that millennium. That's why it's called post-millennialism. Now, Premillennialism was popular in the early church. Church leaders like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, they all expressed a premillennial view. This belief was a natural continuation of the Jewish expectation of an earthly messianic golden age on the earth. In the 5th century, Amillennialism became very popular because of Augustine's City of God. In that book, he affirmed a non-futurist view of the millennium. He believed the millennium is not in the future, but rather is referring to the present church age. And because of his immense influence, the Amillennial view reigned throughout the Middle Ages and into the Reformation. Now, in the 17th century, post-millennialism became immensely popular in colonial America. Why? Because back in that time, everyone was positive. Everyone thought the world was getting better. In the 1740s, there was a little incident that happened in America called the First Great Awakening. You guys know about the First Great Awakening? Uh, For those who have not studied American history, let me just sum it up. Okay, thousands and thousands of people got saved. People who were drunkards, people who were liars, who were immoral, they started turning to Jesus at the preaching of men like George Whitfield. There was a massive awakening. Many, many churches, hundreds of churches within a few years were planted. So when you have that kind of environment of optimism, Post-millennialism is very attractive. And later on, there was something called a second great awakening. So that also helped to create an environment in which post-millennialism was very popular. Now, in the 1800s, the 19th century, after some devastating wars, people became disillusioned with post-millennialism and premillennialism became popular again. But 
a new version of premillennialism called dispensational premillennialism or dispensationalism became immensely popular in the 19th century. This is a view that is vastly different than what the early church fathers believed in. You have to take that mental note. Even though it is called historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism, even though we're both premillennialists, it is vastly different. You have to take note of that. And so to distinguish it, many people will call the early church father's view historic premillennialism. Everybody has to say historic. And then the latter view, the newer view, they call it dispensational premillennialism. Now, that was my first sermon. Okay, For those who did not understand my first sermon, just listen to that portion of the last seven minutes. I just summed it up for you. Now, I didn't realize how interested I am in church history because whenever I read church history, I find it so fascinating. It's like the inside story. You know, you know, like you guys love reality TV shows. You know, you guys love like biographies, like movies about you know Lincoln. What are some of the biographies that came out recently? You know, don't you love like biography movies and biography uh, books? And you know, the Steve Jobs, the biography of Steve Jobs, immensely popular. It's so interesting because you see what drove a person. You see what events happened. You see why people had a chip on their shoulder. Why were they driven? Why were they so prone or vulnerable to believe certain views? Why did they push it the way they did? You know, I'm studying Asian church history right now. And it's really interesting how Islam grew. Because Muhammad, he went to the Jews. He went to the Christians. And they rejected him. So he responded a very particular way. You know, it's very interesting when you study history, right? I'm, I'm, I've been... I've been reading a little bit more about dispensationalism because I'm very troubled. I'm very troubled at how immensely popular it is and how it has permeated the wider evangelical church. And I'm very troubled that I'm a little disappointed that evangelicals They are not thinking for themselves. They are not studying the scriptures. They're not receiving their eschatology from the Bible. But rather, they're getting it from a song. They're getting it from a movie. Oh, that was a good movie. Oh, that must be what the Bible says. (laughs) I read the Bible about all this end time stuff. Man, my head's spinning. That's just too much trouble. I'm going to just let these movie makers tell me what the Bible says. That's troubling. Don't you think that's a little troubling? So in my second sermon, I did a rough exegetical analysis of the millennial views. And in it, I argued for the historic premillennial view. So if you want that, be sure to go listen to that. Now, last week, my third sermon, I talked about the Great Tribulation. And I talked about how dispensational teaching on a pre-tribulation rapture, how it is so popular. And I showed you movie clips, a DC Talk cover song of a Larry Norman song called I Wish We'd All Been Ready. (laughs) And I talked about how the books, the songs, the movies have fed the hype of this teaching and how it made me very concerned that Christians are getting their end time views from these media outlets rather than from the Bible. So today, I was going to talk about the Jews. I was going to talk about the role of the Jews in God's future end time plans. And what is a healthy view that Christians should have toward ethnic Israel, toward the Jews. But I'm not going to preach that today. I'm going to preach that next week. So we're going to extend it to five sermon series. You know why? At next week's sermon, well, you know, I know a lot of you were looking forward to it, and I'll preach on it. But I have to take a pause here because I'm, I'm just very concerned. I'm very concerned. I'm, I'm, a, I'm gonna go in a little bit more into the history of why dispensationalism became popular. Okay, 
So I'm going to talk about today how it became popular, why it is not biblical, and why I think it is very dangerous. And I will also point out that currently dispensationalism is experiencing a demise in popularity. And so for those who don't know, I'm letting y'all know. There's a demise in its popularity, and I'm very relieved to see it. So let's talk about how it became popular, dispensationalism, all right? In the 1800s, there's a guy named John Nelson Darby. He was an Anglo-Irish lawyer who got ordained in the Anglican Church of Ireland. Now, Darby studied the prophecies of Isaiah, Daniel, and the book of Revelation, and he became convinced that they refer to a future kingdom for ethnic Israel on the earth that was distinct from the church. In 1832, he left the Anglican church. He actually called it apostate. You know, and so you can already kind of see he's a very strong personality. You know, um, unlike, you know, some people that I know, you know. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, and Darby began to spread his teachings among a group called the Plymouth Brethren. Now, the Plymouth Brethren, to be fair to them, they weren't all like, oh, yeah, your teachings are awesome. Come bring it in. No, there was disagreements. So among the leaders of the Plymouth Brethren, they disagreed and actually eventually split the Plymouth Brethren because of Darby's teachings. Now, in 1840, Darby constructed an elaborate system that supported his ideas. I'm not afraid to present these ideas to you. Why? Because even as I present them, you might be like, oh, that sounds really good. All right? I want to create that tension for you. If, that, if that's what happens, I want to create that tension for you. Because that tension should be relieved by something. And that's called scripture. Anyway, I'm going to present to you his views. He carefully created this uh, elaborate system. He divided history into distinct eras, which he called dispensations. And he did this because he saw God changing his redemptive plans for mankind in history. So that's what he observed when he read the Bible. That God was changing his redemptive plan. So he, there are seven dispensations. I'll point them out to you. Number one is the dispensation of innocence. This is before the fall of Adam. In the Garden of Eden, Darby argued that it was a dispensation of innocence. Second, from after the fall to Noah, he identifies this period as the dispensation of conscience. There was no Ten Commandments. There was no written Bible. So it was through the conscience that God dealt redemptively and he redeemed mankind. Third, from Noah to Abraham was human government, the dispensation of human government. Fourth is the dispensation of promise. From Abraham until Moses. Moses. What's significant about Moses? The, the law was given with Moses. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob did not have the law. So how does Darby relieve this? He says that this was the dispensation of promise. These patriarchs had to hold to the promise of God. And that's how they were redeemed. The fifth dispensation is the dispensation of law. This lasts from Moses until Jesus Christ. Everyone just stay with me here. All right, just stay with me. And sixth dispensation is the current dispensation of grace. The church age. And the last and seventh dispensation is the dispensation of the kingdom. And Darby interpreted this to mean the millennium. At the age of the kingdom, Jews are going to reign on the earth with Jesus. Okay, so seven dispensations. Now, at the core of this teaching was a conviction that God had two completely separate plans for his people. All right, so God has a plan of redemption for Israel and God has a redemption plan for the church. So one redemption plan is earthly, that's the Jews, and one is heavenly, that's the church. If you don't get this point, you will not understand what dispensationalism is. 
Look, this is not rocket science. I'm, 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 I'm trying to explain to you as simply as possible. You got to understand this. Amen. Even, even your Korean, your, your Korean parents, like even my mother-in-law was, was expressing how last week she listened to my sermon and she was surprised that this pre-tribulational rapture teaching actually came out of dispensationalism. She thought it was just Presbyterian teaching. She thought it was just historic teaching. She thought most of the church believes this. And she wasn't sure if the Korean church here in Korea believes it, but at least the Korean American church sure teaches it. Look, sometimes you don't know what it is. You don't know that your fish sometimes doesn't know that it's in water until you take it out of the water. You know, right now what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to take you out of the water of your blind eschatology. Take you out, put you on on some dry, put you on some pages of scripture. Let you flap around on it a little bit. I just, I just feel the zeal coming up inside of me. <clears throat> anyway, so, so Darby has this, he believes in two plans of redemption, right? And so he insisted on what's called a literal interpretation method for Old Testament prophecies. So whenever Old Testament prophecies concern Israel, he believed that it should only be applied to Israel. Wherever possible, it should only be applied to Israel. And he believed that these two separate types of prophecies need to be kept separate. Now, so this means entirely separate programs are, are envisioned for the church and envisioned for Israel. And so what happens is the church, we're in the church age. Some dispensationalists describe it as a parenthetical time. Like God had this plan for the Jews. It was going forward. It was going forward. It was going forward. And then, oh, the Jews rejected Jesus. All right. Parenthesis mark. You know, the the parenthesis mark, the opening parenthesis mark began at Jesus' first coming. And now it's going to end with the pre-tribulation rapture. So we're in this parenthetical time. And when the pre-tribulation rapture happens, what happens? All the church say bye-bye. Leave their clothes behind. You know what left behind really means, right? (laughs) Leave behind your clothes. That's what it means. I left behind my clothes. That's what it really means. Anyway. And so when the rapture happens, the church is gone, then God resumes. He presses a pause button, so if you will, 2,000 years ago. And after the rapture, God presses play again. It's like he's watching TiVo, you know? He's got it all set up, and then when the rapture takes place, he says, unpause, and he resumes his redemption plan for Jews. That's what the dispensationalist believes. Uh, Darby also believed that in this last dispensation of the kingdom, it will include a third Jewish temple. Now, the first Jewish temple was the one built by Solomon. You guys know history, right? The second temple, that temple got destroyed. You know, the, Babylon, the Babylonians, you know, these, these foreign nations came and destroyed that temple. And then what happens? Ezra, Nehemiah, they go back and they rebuild it. Remember that? Come on, you know your Bible, right? You re- that's the second temple. That's a, no, no, actually, actually, it's not the second temple. I actually, anyway, I won't get into history too much. <laughs> anyway, the temple that was standing when Jesus arrived is mostly commonly referred to as the second temple. It's actually Herod's temple. But anyway, that's beside the point. And so Darby believed, you know, that temple's gone, by the way. There's no temple. You go to Jerusalem, there's no temple. The Muslims destroyed it. Anyway, all right. Just in case you thought there was a temple to go. If you ever go on a tourism tour, tourism tour, there's no temple there. Uh, So Darby teaches that there will be a third temple. The temple will be rebuilt, and the system of sacrificial Old Testament sacrifices will be reinstituted. All right? Now, Darby believed that God could only work with one of his people at a time. So when the church was birthed at Pentecost, God's redemptive plan for Israel was put on hold. Israel was put on a timeout. And the current church age is that parenthetical time. 
And then he insisted that Jesus must rapture the church out of the world before he can restart the prophetic time clock for the Jews. Now, although Darby knew that this was a brand new idea, it didn't bother him. He kept on teaching it throughout Europe, but most notably in the United States. Now, between 1862 and 1877, Darby made seven trips to the United States. In the beginning, his teachings were not received very well. In fact, American evangelicals were offended that he was a Plymouth Brethren. Plymouth Brethren were kind of seen like a cult, you know. And so they didn't like that. And so they didn't like his ecclesiology. They, they were attracted to his end time views, but they rejected his view of the church. And so it was a mixed reception. And some American writers even wrote about the dangers of his teachings. But eventually he got a breakthrough when a couple of Christian magazines were willing to allow him to publish his ideas. Now, these magazines were interdenominational. And so people, they weren't on guard like, oh, that's a Baptist teaching and I'm a Methodist. You know, they weren't on guard. It was interdenominational. So when these teachings went out through the publications, people just generally assumed that it's biblical. And then there was a Bible conference movement. This is very interesting. Listen to this. There was a Bible conference movement that started, and it helped to spread these teachings far and wide. Now, famous of these conferences were called the Niagara Conferences. <laughs> New Philly, we had a conference we hosted three years ago where we met Pastor Benjamin. We called it the Niagara Conference. But it was a different concept. We believe in, a, in an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, you know, like the Niagara Falls, right? That was the vision we're going for. Anyway, these guys, they, they met... In New York, near Niagara Falls. That's why they call it the Niagara Conferences. And these conferences were initially a place to oppose liberal theology. But when the leaders of the conference, they made these doctrinal statements, they, they did not have a strong stance against Darby's pre-trip rapture beliefs on the end times. When they failed to do that, dispensationalists started to go to these conferences and began to push their views very hard. The conference was nearly torn apart. It was like 20 years plus this conference was going on. And throughout that conference, uh, the argument was whether the rapture occurs before the tribulation or after the tribulation. Dispensationalists argued that dispensationalism was the key to understanding the whole Bible, not just prophecy, and that it was a stronghold against liberalism, and that it will guarantee orthodoxy for the ages to come. They held that other views are seriously defective. Now, if you really argue with the dispensationalists, they will give you that kind of tone. Well, well, back then, maybe. Maybe these days, less. But back then, they were very, they were very argumentative. Now, other premillennialists argue that Darby's view of the rapture was not explicitly taught in the Bible. Because it isn't. <laughs> and that it was merely an inference based on mistaken notions. They argued that dispensationalism was a theological novelty. It was brand new onto the earth. And that Darby has no way to substantiate it through church history. Because nobody else supported that idea in church history. And in 1900, Niagara Conference closed down for good. Until now. <laughs> anyway. Now, so by the 1900s, premillennialism had divided into two camps. You had dispensationalism. In fact, a lot of people who were part of Niagara Conferences and other prophetic conferences, they were strong proponents. They were strong advocates of dispensationalism. A lot of them later on recanted it. And they became the strongest critics of dispensationalism in the 1900s. Um, some of them were uh, actually uh, contributing editors to the Schofield Bible. So by the 1900s, premillennialism had split into two. One is the dispensational camp, and one is the historic premillennial camp. Okay? By the end of World War I the downfall of post-millennialism took place. People got more and more disillusioned. 
And American Christians, they sought a better alternative. And the alternative that they landed on was dispensationalism. Dispensationalists also found a close association with the American fundamentalist movement. So if you guys know about fundamentalism in America, you know, they're very like Bible thumpers. It is originated in, with good intentions to oppose liberal theology. But it degenerated into a lot of like Bible thumping and, and, and you know, you need to wear certain things, certain ways. And, you know, they're, they're very fundamental. So in America, when the newscasters say those Christian fundamentals, that's using a negative sense. That's kind of the reputation that the fundamentalists have obtained over the years. But anyway, dispensationalism found a close association with them, so that helped to spread their writings even more. And Darby was strategic. He actually went to big churches with successful pastors and presented his teachings to them, and those pastors in turn used their pulpits to spread the dispensational teachings as well. Uh, another thing that's really very interesting is that Pentecostal denominations, Symbolum right? Assemblies of God, Pentecostal denominations adopted dispensationalism without asking many questions. I didn't know that till, till I read this historic account. So many of your Pentecostal friends are probably very, very concerned about my sermon series right now. They don't like it. They're not convinced. Why? Because they grew up with dispensationalism. Because Pentecostal leaders, for whatever reason, they bought into dispensationalism wholesale without really critically thinking it through. And now what's really interesting is this. Generally, dispensationalists do not believe in spiritual gifts for today. Isn't that an irony? Actually, the, the first reason why I got introduced to even something called dispensationalism was because I heard that there's a seminary down in Texas that teaches vehemently against spiritual gifts for today. And so I was like, what, what is this seminary? Why is the seminary so vehemently opposed, you know? And actually, my earliest books on the charismatic movement and on spiritual gifts, the books that I read by Jack Deere and Robert Heatler, these are two authors you can probably find in our bookstore. They were both former professors of the seminary, meaning that they both believe that there is no prophecy, there is no spiritual gifts, there is no miraculous healings for today. They believe that at one point. Because that seminary is a dispensational seminary. But eventually, they experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. And so they were like, uh... I think I changed my mind. And then the, the seminary, they uh, forced them or they ended up resigning on their own. But the cool thing is, these guys are some of the best teachers on spiritual gifts. Because that school has a reputation for really training up some of the best uh, teachers in the church. Isn't that an irony? Pentecostals, they just received dispensational teachings on the end times while rejecting the dispensational teachings on spiritual gifts. I, I, man, is that my, am I the only one that gets, I'm tripping out on that one. Uh, many Bible institutes fell into dispensationalist hands later on, including Moody Bible Institute. Uh, the famous seminary I was just talking about, Dallas Theological Seminary, was founded in 1924. To continue to spread their beliefs. They also gained control of missions agencies. Including African Inland Mission. All my African brothers and sisters. What is your end times view? Because African Inland Missions probably spread a preacher rapture view. Uh, dispensations also took over publishing houses. Or they started publishing houses. Zondervan. Baker. Eerdmans. Scripture Press. These are some of the more famous ones in the academic circle. Zondervan is just mainline. And so while dispensationalists also condemned the world, they were masters of the world's media. And so uh, there was a book called Jesus is Coming in 1878. 
Another book called uh, Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth by C.I. Schofield. The Schofield Reference Bible. The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. That's a really immensely popular one that was uh, published in 1970. The Left Behind series. I mean, they have a rich tradition of using popular media to disseminate their beliefs. Uh, Timothy Weber, he says it like this. By the end of World War I, dispensationalism was nearly synonymous with fundamentalism and Pentecostalism. 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 Hallelujah. Pentecostalism. Now, how did dispensationalism become so popular? I just went over how. Now, if I had to take these two views, personify them into a high school student, and place them into a typical American high school cafeteria, it would look like this. You ready? You ever watch the, girl, uh, the, the movie Mean Girls? Okay. Over here, it's the dispensational lunch table. These girls, they have perfect skin. They dress real nice. The men that sit at that table, they play football. They look like supermodels. It's the popular table right here. How many of y'all used to sit with the popular table, at the popular table when you were in high school? How many of y'all used to sit with the popular table? We got some unpopular people in this house. Come on. No, none of y'all were popular? What the? Hey, so that's the dispensation table. Very popular. And they're very popular because why? They make movies. They write fiction books. They write bestsellers. They perform songs. It's popular. You go over here to the historic classic premillennial table. And everyone's quiet. Everyone's reading their Bible. <laughs> they either have like their pants hiked up too high or overalls, glasses coming down like this. <laughs> Historic premillennialists are like the nerds of the school. They have not written riveting fiction novels. They have not starred in Hollywood movies. They can't. They're, they're tone deaf. I don't know. <laughs> if you look at most of their writings, they're by scholars and they're written for scholars. So most people in here, you probably never read a book by a historic premillennialist. Because it might be a little bit too technical for you to get through. So nobody really knows about it. But over here, over here, this table, right, I, I'm going to end there. I'm going to end there. I feel like that's just to stop there. Okay. So even if you took a popularity contest about your tribulation view, if we could vote and tell God, Lord, this is what you want us to do regarding the rapture and the tribulation. Okay? If we took a vote in here, most of you in here would vote for a pre-tribulation view. Why? Because it is very, very unpopular to teach that we have to go through the tribulation. If you could choose, wouldn't you rather escape the tribulation? So fundamentally, you have a very, you have an issue of popularity. But check this out. Just because something is popular doesn't make it right. As most of your high school experiences have proven. Okay, all the friends I remember that sat at the popular table, they're some of the biggest losers today. Well, how do I know? Facebook. <laughs> I follow up to see what they're doing with their lives. But 
that Indian kid that was always competing with me <laughs> were the higher grade. That boy that sat all by himself most time during lunchtime. That Indian boy went on to like be the CEO of his own company and stuff. You know what I mean? Now I can't really say that I was like part of the the nerd table or the popular table, and I I, I had the ability to adapt. I go in, I'd be like, hey, what y'all talking about? What you talking about? Yeah, yeah, that sounds smart. All right, that's good. I go over here. What's up, y'all? What's up? What's happening, man? I was a floater. All right. I actually joined my, my wrestling team. And when I was on the wrestling team and I was winning matches, man, I was like one of, the, one of the more popular students. And then at my semifinals, I lost the one key match that, the whole team was counting on me to win. And not only did I lose, but I got pinned. So that's six points for the other team. If I lost just by points, it would have been a lot less. But the other team got six whole points. So we had to bump up some of my friends up a weight class. Like I had this guy who was like 160, 170 pounds. He had to wrestle a guy that was 220 pounds. Anyway, it was, it was, it was messy. So I mean, my popularity kind of... <laughs> I sat with the nerds after that match. <laughs> Uh, I can always count on y'all. <laughs> What's up? I know where some of y'all sat. Y'all sat with them gothic people, huh? That dark black makeup, black trench coat. And what's funny is, you know, my school is very multi-ethnic. Uh, it's very diverse. But even though it's diverse, you always have the cool Asian table, the nerdy Asian table. Then you had the cool African-Americans. And then you only had like two non-cool African-Americans. <laughs> the most African-Americans at my school were pretty popular. <laughs> anyway, all right. I'm going to stop there. Some, just because something is popular does not make it right. So my second point, why I think dispensationalism is not biblical One of the distinguishing marks of dispensationalism is their insistence on a literal interpretation for Old Testament prophecies, especially those regarding the Jews. So, for example, when a prophecy is made about the Jews, they insist that that prophecy must pertain to the Jews and to the Jews only. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. In other words, God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with the northern kingdom and with the southern kingdom. At that time, the Israelites were split in half. So dispensationalists will look at that and say, hey, that should only apply to Jews. Look at it. It's very clear. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. How much more clear can you get? Now, the problem is Hebrews chapter 8. Everyone turn to Hebrews chapter 8. I know what table John Westfall used to sit at. You know, people who are people who are half, man, they had it rough. They had a rough because some they they sometimes the white people will accept them, and other times the Koreans will accept them, but most of the time they were just rejected everywhere. So it was it was rough. I remember for all my half friends, Westfall was shaking his head. Don't man, don't don't lie. <laughs> you know, you sat by yourself eating lunch most of the time. <laughs> I'm playing, I'm playing, I'm playing. I'm playing. Hey, I always, I always reach out to the halves, man, the half us. I was like, hey, come on, man, you're Korean. Come here. Come here, you know how to eat this kimchi? Anyway, I'm just, I'm just playing. I'm just teasing. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 8. If you look at Hebrews 8.8, 8, the author here, he quotes something that sounds very familiar. I'll read from verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I brought them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue my covenant, and so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. 
This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. And if you keep on reading, verse 13, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, if you read just the Old Testament, it looks like it's a prophecy just for the Jews. But when you read verse 8, the New Testament writer takes this Old Testament prophecy and interprets it as being fulfilled in the church through the new covenant that was made in Christ's blood. What you must understand is that the dispensational interpretation method is not sound. It is not balanced. The technical word will be hermeneutic. The dispensational hermeneutic is not sound. Why? It's because the New Testament frequently takes Old Testament prophecies seemingly out of context and then reinterprets them in light of the Christ event. I'll give you an example. Um, Hosea 11.1. In the Old Testament, it reads like this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Okay. Now, historically, who does that mean? Who is he talking about here? What is this uh, author of Hosea talking about? It's all about the Exodus, right? When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. That's talking about the Exodus. But if you read Matthew 2.15, the author quotes this verse to prove from the scriptures why Jesus as a child went down to live in Egypt for a little while and how God had to call him out of Egypt. In the context of Hosea, it it was just a factual statement about the Exodus. But the writer of Matthew takes this factual statement, turns it into a prophecy, and claims that it was fulfilled in God's greatest son, namely Jesus. So this this dispensationalist has a problem. Their little neat system of interpretation is meeting up against a whole lot of New Testament writers that seem to be taking Old Testament prophecies out of context. Many Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel have been interpreted by New Testament writers as being fulfilled in the church. So the fact of the matter is, this is what uh, Eldon uh, Ladd, he says, the Old Testament did not foresee how its prophecies would be fulfilled. They were fulfilled in ways that appears out of context and were completely unexpected by the Jews. Uh, I'll give you another example. Ezekiel 40 to 48. The dispensationalists actually used this passage, Ezekiel 40 to 48, to argue that in the millennium, that the entire sacrificial system is going to be restored. It's going to be reinstituted. But then they further reinterpret it and say that this sacrificial system is not going to be like the Old Testament system, but it's going to be instead be a memorial to the sacrificial death of Jesus. Now, for the dispensationalists, they argue that because they have a literal... Interpretation method. And so say, they say, wherever it is possible, you must take it literally. You must interpret it literally. So Ezekiel 40 to 48, if you interpret it literally, it looks like it's going to be restored in the future. But once again, the dispensationists, they have a problem. Because in the New Testament, in Hebrews 8.13, it clearly affirms, we just read it, That the old sacrificial system is obsolete and is about to pass away permanently. So, here, if you still don't get what I'm talking about, this is the the gist of what I'm talking about. Okay, 
the Old Testament must be interpreted in light of the New Testament, not the other way around. The Old Testament prophecies about Israel and about the Jews must take into account the Christ event when Jesus arrived at his first coming. But the dispensationalists, they try to support their ideas by interpreting the Old Testament in the Old Testament context. George Ellenland, he sums it up. He says, dispensationalism forms its eschatology by literal interpretation of the Old Testament and then fits the New Testament into it. But a non-dispensational eschatology forms its theology from the explicit teaching of the New Testament. Now you tell me what you think sounds more sound. What sounds more sound? (laughs) So your pastor here, I am most persuaded And I'm actually quite troubled at the dispensational method of interpretation. The most balanced way is not to spiritualize every prophecy and apply it to the church. But some of those prophecies are applied to the church and you got to accept it where it's, it's like that. And where you feel like there is a prophecy that pertains to the Jews and the Jews only, you got to help to identify that in a sound and balanced way. I, I do believe there are Old Testament prophecies like that. But the dispensationalists will argue that all of them that seem like that are like that. And that's where I would disagree. That's a, that's a huge fundamental difference in how the dispensationalist reads their Bible and how your pastor reads his Bible. Now, that's uh, why I think it's unbiblical. Okay? Because basically, there is, their interpretation is... Not very sound. I would say it's not very convincing. It's not very sound. Uh, another reason is because the preacher rapture is not found in the Bible. <laughs> it's not explicitly taught in the Bible. So you would, you would have to convince me otherwise. Now, I'm going to move on to third, my third point, my last point. Why I think dispensationalism is dangerous. Here's why I think dispensationalism is dangerous. If you believe in the dispensational system of history and the future redemption, you believe in what is called the the pre-tribulation rapture, right? Well, here's the thing. Larry Norman is singing the song, I wish we'd all been ready, right? Now, the irony, I think, is in dispensationalism, In a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial view, the only thing you need to get ready is to become a Christian. And make sure you're a Christian and not a fake Christian. That's the only thing you need to get ready. So as long as you know you're a Christian, you're safe. You're going to get raptured. I think the song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready, is actually a more fitting anthem for the post-tribulational premillennialists, don't you think? Yeah. You know, I think God has a good sense of humor. If the post-tribulational view is right, and we go through the tribulation, the church is not raptured, but we have to go through the seven years of tribulation, you know, I will not be surprised if we are singing that song in church. And all these people who believe in this preacher rapture and then they went through all of this hardship and they just fell away. You know, we'll be saying, I wish we'd all been ready. <laughs> Two men going up a hill. One is standing. And the other is standing still. <laughs> You know why it's dangerous? It's because if you really believe it, you're not really getting ready for the return of Christ. Because all you're looking forward to is escaping the tribulation. And from there on, you're home scot-free. You can live a double Christian life as long as you repent. You relately writing related to the Lord. There's not much complicated implications to your. There's not many imp- consequences to your actions. But boy, if you are wrong, and the church 
has got to go through the tribulation. You know, so many dispensationalists who hold to this view, I believe, when the tribulation hits, they're going to be jacked up. They're going to be disillusioned. Their view of God's righteousness is going to get jacked up. You know one of the reasons why I'm a Calvinist? Because the Calvinist position has the strongest biblical support for the sovereignty of God and the righteousness of God. Now, when I say the righteousness of God, what I mean is our view of God's character. The Calvinist position, I believe, has the strongest view of God's righteousness. You know what that view is? You want me to sum that up? I was going to cover this next week, but I'll just sum it up real quick for you. The view of God's righteousness for a Calvinist is this. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he will harden whom he wills. For most people with the humanist ideals and philosophies, they have a difficult time believing in the view of God's character summarized by that statement in Romans chapter 9. They believe God's out there to give everybody a chance to get saved. God loves everybody. Christ died for everybody. The prerogative is to just go out there and try to save as many people as you can before the rapture hits. I'm more, I'm more than willing to embrace that if I find it in the Bible. But in my search of the scriptures, I have not found that. You know, a lot of people will disagree with me. And they would say, oh, you know, your views on predestination election. You need, to, you need to back off, Pastor Christian. You need to calm down. You know, in my seminary class last week, we discussed Romans 9 through 11. And I was just like, I was just going at it. I was trying to hold back too. I was holding back, but I was still going at it. And I wasn't like arguing with people, but I was trying to challenge my seminary classmates. Like, think. Like, search the scriptures. Like, engage the historical arguments. Do you know what is being argued here? And, you know, like I said, I... I I was a little disappointed that they weren't not able to articulate these views very well. But I, I was going at it. And you know, you know why this, you know, people would disagree with me. I don't, I don't even know if Pastor Benjamin, all right, would, what he would say about this. But I know what I, I, what I believe. This is before I even met Pastor Benjamin. These are the convictions I, I had on my heart. Is that in the last days, the Calvinist view of God's righteousness is what's going to keep people from being offended by God. Because when you see the wrath of God being poured out on the earth during the Great Tribulation, you will start your Arminian viewpoints about God's heart for the, for the, for the world. It's going to shatter in a moment. Why is God bringing judgment, calamity? Why are so many people dying and perishing? Why is there so much suffering? You will be easily offended by God. You won't even last one year of the tribulation before you are so offended you just want to walk away from God. But here is the view of God's righteousness revealed in Scripture. He is the potter. We are the clay. God sovereignly reserves the right what he will do with that clay. Some he sets apart for noble purposes. Some he sets apart for not so noble purposes. And the Scripture says in Romans 9, For this reason... I raised you up, and God's talking to Pharaoh, that my glory may be displayed. And the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his heart toward God. But if you read Exodus, it also said God hardened Pharaoh's heart to God. And so you would ask, wait, if God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that's not fair. What about Pharaoh? What about his family? God, why don't you give Pharaoh a chance? That's not right. Aren't you an equal opportunity redeemer? <laughs> and so the rhetorical question comes up in Romans 9. All right. You may argue then, who resists God's will? And then Paul just shuts it all down by saying, who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? And so... Man, I'm, I'm going I'm to ahead of myself. So this is a little bit more on next week's sermon, right? Because it's going to pertain to my 
understanding of the future role of the Jews. Um, so I'm going to just kind of um, wrap it up here. Dispensationalism right now is currently is experiencing a popularity demise. And so what's happening is traditional dispensationalists are altering their views under what's called progressive, progressive dispensationalism and also under another banner called New Covenant Theology. So I'm just putting it out there for those who are more well-read. Be careful what you read under those, subject, under those uh, umbrellas. New Covenant Theology and progressive dispensationalism. They tweak some of their points to make it more widely accepted among the evangelical church. Because they are losing their popularity at this time. And you know what? I am greatly relieved that dispensationalism is losing its popularity. And you know why I'm preaching these sermon series? It's to destroy. Not destroy, I'm sorry. (laughs) It's to argue against a pre-tribulational rapture view because as, as... dispensationalism loses its popularity, Christians should also think for themselves, well, what, is it, what else did I receive from dispensationalism? And we should think critically about their end-time views. Timothy Weber, he says it like this. Old-line dispensationalists have detected slippage. For example, Dallas Seminary and Moody Bible Institute, once bastions of dispensational truth, and many other schools that once defined themselves in dispensational terms now recognize that their own survival depends on appealing to a broader kind of evangelicalism. Also, as separatist fundamentalism has lost ground to a more inclusive evangelicalism, so has dispensationalism been losing ground to historic premillennialism. Okay, what, what did that just say? That just simply said they're losing their popularity. This table right here, people are starting to empty this table out. And you know what? Right now, those who are trying to find... Remember after the World War I, Americans were looking for another alternative and they landed at dispensationalism? Hey, check this out. Right now, people are looking for another alternative. Let's think this time! Let's read the Bible this time! Let's re-engage in history this time. Why am I going over all this historical account? Why am I going over everybody's story like this? You know, and this is a poor caricature of John Nelson Darber, but in one sense, you know what? He's like the guy that, you know, people were like, man, get out of here. Ain't nobody want to believe your beliefs. So he went somewhere else. And, he, and you know, the, the Anglican church was like, man, get, the, get out of here. And Darby was like, all right, Plymouth Brethren. Hey, brother, hey, brother, let me tell you something. And then the Plymouth Brethren, like, what, you, what is this mess you're teaching? And then he starts spreading it among the Plymouth Brethren. And, the, and then the Plymouth leaders are like, hey, man, this is, this is wrong. And then, the, and then it ended up splitting the Plymouth Brethren. Then he started coming to America. You know? And what the American evangelicals, they rejected him, remember? Because they didn't like his ecclesiology because they thought he was part of a cult. Right? So what did he do? He started looking for ways to, you know? He, I mean, this guy's got a chip on his shoulder, don't you think? Spreads it among these publications. Oh, this is poor caricature. I'm tr- I'm, I'm, this is very bad. I'm not honoring this man. This is my theory. Okay, this is my theory. There's a story behind it, why it spread the way it did. But you know what? For historic premillennials, they don't have that. They don't have that drive. That's why we don't make movies. You know, I would really love it for historic premillennials to make a movie. Show us what you believe. You know, show us a movie where we're on an airplane and then we all land. We are still in that airplane when we land and then the Antichrist comes out and says, Hey, hey, y'all all need to bow down to me. Put the mark of the beast on your forehead or you can't buy or sell. (laughs) And then Christians stand up and say, I will not get that mark on my forehead. Then you can just go to jail, whatever. Like, you know, and the tribulation begins. Show me a movie like that. Come on. That's, I'll watch that movie. I will pay. Double the price to watch that movie. <laughs> but unfortunately, the historic premillennial table, they're not interested in that kind of popularity. <clears throat> but the cool thing is some of the young leaders in the, in the more influential churches right now, they're teaching what I'm teaching. They're teaching what I'm teaching. 
some of the old heads, like uh, I hate to name names, but I'm gonna I'm gonna name names. Uh, Greg Laurie, very popular California pastor. You know, he goes around he he teaches on dispensationalism, teaches on pre-trib rapture, says it's unbiblical to teach on a post-trib rapture. I'm sorry, Greg Laurie, I disagree. I disagree. And you know what? I feel like you know that leadership mantle is going to be vacated real soon. And it's going to be filled by young leaders that are more critical thinking. Because you know why? We need those young leaders to think critically because we're about to hit the end times. Either our generation or our children's generation. And if we want to teach them what's in the Bible, oh, they're going to, they're going to be preparing themselves for a preacher rapture. And then they find out that they're still on the airplane. And then they land. And then they see the Antichrist. And then, Mom, Dad! What did you teach me? And then, you know, David Hahn is in heaven. Oops. All right, let me close in prayer. <laughs> All right, so next week, I'm going to teach on the Jews, okay? Now, the one thing that we ought to be thankful and honored to this dispensationalists for is their strong support of Israel. From day one, they have been very politically involved, economically involved, in supporting the state of Israel. I don't know in God's sovereignty. He used these dispensationalists to do that. But one thing that I want you to know. Is that it's not just a dispensational agenda. You can be non-dispensational. And still support Israel. In a balanced and sound way. So next week I'm going to talk about. The church's historic views toward Israel. And then teach you what I think is a more balanced view. Now, dispensationalists think that the only way that we can have a future hope for Israel is to take Old Testament prophecies literally wherever possible. I disagree. There's a passage in Romans 11:26. The whole chapter of Romans 11 talks about God's purpose in election and how his promises to David... To the patriarchs, they have not failed. His promises to the Jews have not failed. And that in the end times, this partial hardening of the Jews, go to Romans 11, it's all there, will be lifted. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. The full number of the Gentiles come in. The partial hardening lifts. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. There's been a lot of people arguing, what does that mean? And so I got to write a paper actually about it two, two years ago because my professor dared me to write the paper because we disagreed in class and he's a very educated professor and I wouldn't back down. So he said, why don't you write your paper on it? And I said, no, you're going to give me an F. And then he was like, no, no, I, w- I won't give you an F. You just write your paper on it. Let me see what you can do. And I said, all right. And so I, I wrote my paper. I wrote my paper on it, and uh, I realized it's an area that uh, most of the church doesn't study. And it's actually quite troubling what happened in, in history. And uh, I'll tie it in with the Holocaust as well. Uh, in Germany, there was a strong anti-Semitism, and it was actually rooted in some of what the Reformers taught. And so you have to be careful with how you interpret Scripture. And so and I will cover that next week, but... The dispensational way is not the only way to support a future view for Israel, is what I'm trying to say. I'll argue that next week. Uh, Why don't we all stand to our feet? We'll we'll close with a happy song or something like that. Remember that last week I taught that even though I believe the church has to go through the tribulation, it's not going to be just hold on for dear life. It's going to be Isaiah 60. The glory of the Lord will rise upon you. Kings will be drawn to the brightness of your dawn. When the world gets darker, the church is going to shine even brighter. And so we have a picture of a victorious church. And there are few people 
good Bible study teachers like Mike Bickle, who does teach on a victorious church going through the tribulation. And so even as we sing the song, I want you to envision the church strong and mighty, victorious. Why is it important for your church to teach well and to develop a strong prayer movement and for you to have a strong prayer life? Why is that important? So that when Jesus returns to the earth, he can find faith on the earth. If the church is, is uh, like holding on for dear life and Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation, what's he going to find? He ain't going to find much faith. But Jesus said, oh, I have a baptism to undergo. And a fire that I, oh, how I wish it was already kindled. God is pouring out his spirit on the church today in unprecedented fashion. Why? To empower the church, to ready the church, to help the church to rise up and be victorious through whatever the end time events may come, that the church will be mighty and victorious in the last days. Let's just sing this together.